Thanks, Gary. Appreciate that. And, you know, as Jared said, it's a, obviously a, a difficult passage this morning. And uh, if you're new with us, maybe helpful to know we've been working our way through the book of Genesis for about a year and a half now, chapter by chapter. Uh, and and as, as Jared again referenced, he said, we believe this is the whole counsel of God, that every word in the Bible is inspired by God without error, and it's all valuable uh, for us learning how to follow Jesus, for us seeing the big story of the gospel throughout the whole scriptures. Uh, and so that's, that's our aim this morning, is to see what does this tell us about God, his grace, about ourselves, and how we can follow him. Uh, and so I just invite you back to prayer with me here as we look at this passage uh, we ask for kind of three things each week, that God would give us eyes to see the truth very clearly, that he would give us ears to hear it, and most importantly, perhaps, that we have a humble heart to receive it and change like he wants us to. So I'll pray those things over you, and you pray them for yourself as well, please. Father, we're thankful for the gift of your word that gives both life and light that's living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Every single word of it is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for training, for correcting, for growth and righteousness, so that your people may be complete, lacking nothing. And as we come to your word this morning, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth of Genesis 38. We ask you'd give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. And you'd give each of us a humble heart to receive your word, to be changed by your word, to be convicted by your word. Give us the grace we need to change, to become more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The day that Emily and I got engaged, we were in New York City, and we had the great privilege of having both of our families there. Technically, I wasn't supposed to be there. It was a, a big surprise shindig that I'd planned, and, and I had the whole thing planned out, exactly how the surprise would be executed, where we would meet up, where we were going to go out to dinner afterwards, I had the whole thing. But we got this major curveball on the day of our engagement, my mom had discovered that the musical Wicked was on Broadway, and she had the grand idea that we should go to the musical after our dinner appointment. Well, I wasn't really a fan of musicals, so I thought it was a lame idea, but she said this would be a great way to cap off a momentous day. And so we started going back and forth with this little bit of banter. She's saying, no, like, this is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You should do this. Like, oh, mom, I don't know. It's not really my thing. It's already a full day. She says, no, you, you really should. She, she even offered to buy the tickets for us. And, uh, and I was like, I, I don't know. I don't think we should. And we kept going back and forth. And, and eventually I caved and we went. And it was a wonderful time. Now, I'd never, like I said, never been much for musicals and certainly never been one to one on Broadway. And it absolutely blew my mind. Like this thing was incredible. And if you've been to one, you kind of know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, like I can say as a, as a convert now, you're missing out. Um, but, but I mean, the, the whole bit, the actors, the musicians, the theatrics, the, the acrobatics, people flying through the, through the air, and, and the soundtrack I love, the whole thing was remarkable. It, it's interesting that 
now, whether it's a professionally done musical or just one at a local high school, I see these things in a totally different light. I'm like, this is, this is really cool to see what's going on here. And had my mom not pushed me on that day to go and see it, I probably never would have seen that side of life through the lens, the glasses that I now see it through, right? It was a good thing that she pushed me in that way. And, and as I studied Genesis 38 this week, kind of zooming ahead, what I realized is Genesis 38 is a little bit like my mom taking me or talking me into seeing Wicked. Because my guess is when you first heard Gary read the passage, your response was a little bit like mine back then. Like, is this really the best use of our time on Sunday? <laughs> well, what's the point of all this exactly? But if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you were shocked to hear that these kinds of stories are in the Bible and are read out loud at church, no less. Right? You're kind of going back and forth, like, is this really what we ought to be doing here? So let me play the part of my mother for just a moment. It's good for us to be here. All of God's word is valuable. And I understand this passage isn't exactly what you expect to find, perhaps, on Sunday morning. I, I, I get that. It is one of the strangest passages in the whole Bible, maybe the strangest passage. But this story, I think, gives us an incredible picture of God's grace. I hope to show it to you by the end of our time together this morning. So if you're a little bit skeptical of that claim, it's okay. Stick with me. We'll, we'll see what's here. Um, but I think the thing to recognize is this. If we're merely telling the story of Joseph's life, last week and we'll continue for the next couple of months here. If we're merely telling his life, chapter 38 feels a little bit unnecessary. He doesn't show up anywhere in the chapter. There's all kinds of bizarre happenings. What are we supposed to do with this? Maybe to put it a little differently, you might be more familiar with Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, but you haven't seen the musical from chapter 38 yet. Hopefully they don't make one. But hey, here, here's the good news. We're not merely telling the story of Joseph. The Bible isn't just a collection of stories of old guys who lived in the Middle East. It's not mere history. The Bible isn't merely a set of inspirational stories to make you a better leader or a better friend or a, a better member of society. No, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a single story about God's grace and his plan to save the world. And when you start to see the Bible in that way, it totally changes your perspective. Each little story is part of a larger story. So our task this morning is to see this smaller, surprising story in light of the bigger story of God's grace. So, so what, what we plan to do, here's kind of our approach this morning. I want to recap the story and track some of the characters and then at the end, I want to look at three responses that we ought to have to a passage like Genesis 38. If we simplify it to kind of one singular idea that I want you to see clearly in Genesis 38, it would simply be this. God's grace brings hope to the ungodly and the unloved. God's grace brings hope to the ungodly and the unloved. Let's start kind of tracking the story here. Judah is the main character in chapter 38. He ends up being one of these 12 tribes of Israel. But he doesn't have the best of credentials, you might say. He was one of the sons of Leah, the unwanted and unloved wife of Jacob. And not only was he a son of the unloved, unwanted wife, he was actually her fourth son. So it puts him really low on the family pecking order. 
He's left out of everything, and he seems to sort of rage against his own family. You see, it was Judah's idea in chapter 37 to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. It's it's almost as if Judah realized that his dad loved Joseph more than him, and he just got sick of being the overlooked child and says, I'm going to do this my way. And eventually he decides that rather than being a second-class citizen in his own family, he's just going to go out and start his own way and kind of turn away from everything and everybody he's known. That's where we pick up in verse 2 of chapter 38. So let's go back and read this together. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So so Judah goes off, and he marries this Canaanite woman, which would certainly not please his parents. Now, Now, some have tried to make this a statement about interracial marriage, and that is absolutely not what's going on here. It's not... They're not saying anything bad about interracial marriage. It's an issue of interfaith marriage. This woman will lead him away from God and the promises of God and the blessings of God. Don't mishear what's happening there. And the language of the text seems to suggest this was a lust-driven kind of marriage. And Judah names his first son Ur, which sounds like a strange name for us, but if you take the Hebrew word for Ur, it's actually evil spelled backwards. So it's not a great start to Judah's life here. Then he's absent from naming his second son, absent from naming his third son, and actually at the birth of the third son, he's not even present. If you look back at verse 5, you'll see that he was in this city known as Chezeb. Chezeb means city of lies. So the picture we get is almost like his son is about to be born, and he decides, you know what, I don't need to be here for the birth of my son. It's better that we take a boy's trip to Vegas this weekend, because that's a better spot for me to be than at the birth of my son. Like, it's not a good picture of Judah that we're seeing. His children turn out to be wicked. And we, we know that godly parents can raise children that end up being wicked. So it's not an immediate correlation there. And don't mishear that. But the picture of Judah we get is an absent dad and an evil man. We pick up his family in in verse 6. Here's what we read. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. What they're describing here is what's known as the principle of a leveret marriage. It's a common practice in the ancient Near East where if a married man died, it was his brother's responsibility to marry the widow and provide offspring for her. This would continue the family line, and it would protect the woman from poverty that would have come on her as a widow and a life of destitution. So it is a way of protecting women. Like I said, it was common in the ancient Near East. For the Israelites, this would be written down and sort of codified in Deuteronomy 25, and it would even continue until the days of Jesus. Because in Matthew 22, the scribes and the Pharisees are asking questions about how exactly they're supposed to do this. It's it's the the leveret marriage that's going on here. 
So Onan, the second son, had a responsibility to marry Tamar, provide offspring for her, provide protection from her. This would have been the honorable thing to do. But instead, because he's not going to have his own children, now he's raising up children for his deceased brother Ur, he gets selfish and doesn't want to kind of do what he's called to do. He wants to take things his own way. And so what Onan do is he does is he uses Tamar. He wants the pleasure of sex without the responsibility of providing for his wife and what could have been kids. Now, Onan publicly looks good, and he knows that. He looks like he's done the right thing. But privately and behind closed doors, he's humiliating Tamar because she knows that she'll never have children the way he's behaving. And you could almost see these family conversations. They get together, and Onan is with his dad and said, Dad, I don't know what's going on. I'm doing my part. Well, I don't know why she can't get pregnant. And yet she's unable to speak and give the truth of how he's using and abusing her. Men, it's important you hear this and you recognize God cares deeply how you treat women, that you protect them, that you provide for them, that you defend them. You can come to church and be in public places and look like you've done the right thing, and yet behind closed doors, maybe you don't behave quite like Onan did, and there's cultural differences there. I get that. But you're not a protector, and you're not a provider, and you need to be. Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that it matters immensely how we behave as men that we treat our wives with honor as the weaker vessel. God says, if you don't do that, your prayers will be hindered. You can fool people around you. You can't fool God. And Onan didn't fool God. In fact, God killed him for his wickedness. This leaves Tamar in quite the precarious position. Both of her husbands have now died. The youngest son, Shelah, it seems there may have been an age gap there, is supposed to marry her. We pick up the story in verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he'd die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, on first glance, this sounds like a reasonable thing. Shayla's a younger guy, maybe he's you know, 14, 15, let him grow up a little bit, and then we'll carry on with the lever at marriage like we're supposed to. But we get the idea from verse 14 that Judah had no intention of giving Shayla as a husband to Tamar at all. Soon this would be revealed, and so you see this picture of Tamar as being unloved and totally alone. She's not being defended or protected like she should have. And what Judah is essentially saying is this. This Tamar, she's the problem. Everybody who goes near her dies, and I don't want my son to die. We're the righteous ones. She's the wicked one. Don't go near that woman. Quite the thing to say for a guy as wicked as Judah with his sons who have behaved as wickedly as they have, isn't it? Commentator Matthew Harmon helpfully points out the irony of his statement. It is curious logic. Judah sold his own brother, ditched his family, plunged into a shotgun wedding, ran with the wrong crowd, and ignored his children. However, he was sure that those two mounds of fresh dirt that used to be his sons 
were Tamar's fault. You see, Tamar here realizes she's in a major bind. She has a right to children through the youngest son, but the father-in-law, Judah, has all the leverage. Without children or a husband, she's bound to a lifetime of poverty and widowhood. And so after years of waiting, she devises a plan. Not a righteous plan, but an effective plan to flip the script and gain some leverage over Judah. So we find that Judah is going up to what this is. It's basically a sheep-shearing festival. It's a festive time. It's, it's sort of the cultural equivalent to college kids going on spring break. You, you get the idea, right? And so there's, there's sexual promiscuity that's expected at this sheep-shearing festival that Judah is going to. And so Tamar pretends to be a prostitute at the sheep-shearing festival, and Judah finds her. We pick up in verse 14. Look back at God's word. Here's what we read. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she'd not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, well, what pledge shall I give? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. And we read that, and it's important to notice the time gap. Shayla is now grown up. However much time had passed, it's been a period of years that have elapsed here. He's still not been given in marriage to Tamar. And she recognizes what's going on. Oh, I see the game you guys are playing. And it's been years and years and years and years. You don't have any intention of doing what you're supposed to do. This sort of helps us understand the radical step she would take. The deep frustration and pain she must have been dealing with. Maybe you read that account there and you, you wonder, how in the world could Judah not know who she was? Like, that just seems like a head-scratcher. It is a great question. Maybe he was just completely inebriated. It's a festive time. You, you could picture something like that. Verse 15 does comment on her covering her face, and so that seems to be the indication in the passage given. We, we don't know exactly how all of that worked. But this signet, this cord, this staff, these are the items that, that Tamar is really after. They're, they're sort of the equivalent to like a driver's license, a credit card, and a favorite pair of shoes. She's saying, I need to be able to identify you. I need to be able to say, this is your stuff. Remember, she's trying to flip the script and gain some leverage here. So the deed is done. And Judah has promised to send a goat up, but he doesn't really want people to know what he's been up to, understandably so. So he sends a friend. It's quite the request to bring to his buddy. Hey, go take this goat up. The friend arrives. Nobody has seen the prostitute that they're looking for. And so they both say, you know what? Let's just save face and call it a day. We've dodged a bullet here. People don't exactly, or it's not widely known at least what we're up to. It's almost like somebody would grab your iPhone or get access to your YouTube history, and you'd be really embarrassed to know some of the things you've been up to. That's kind of what it's like in a 
several thousand years ago context for Judah. It's interesting to point out that we've found all kinds of new ways and new technologies that help us to sin. But in all cultures and all people, there's the same human heart underneath that really would rather conceal our sin and not bring it out into the light. The story continues in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah has this strict, harsh judgment for the sins of others while hypocritically pretending like he's the righteous one. That's a good reminder for us. It is so easy to be outraged at the sins of others and completely blind to our own sins. It's as if Judah says, finally we can be done with this troublesome woman. I've been trying to set her aside for years and now we've caught her red-handed. Burn her! Little did he know how the tables were about to turn. Look at verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. I wonder if you start to, just kind of in your mind's eye, envision the scene. Tamar walks out, baby bump starting to show, everyone casting a judgmental eye. You hear the little whispers, can you believe what she did? It, it almost reads like a scene out of Judge Judy, doesn't it? <laughs> Get the sleazeball old man trying to pull the wool on everyone, and the moment of truth is coming, and it cuts to commercials. And you come back on the other side, and there's a dramatic scene where the woman that you think has been the wicked one has a, a, a moment of truth. She lays out the item, says, well, it's just whoever's driver's license this is, whoever's credit card this is, and if anybody wears a size 13 of those shoes that we know around here, this is the father. And instantly, the whole thing has been flipped on its head, and they know exactly what happened. Judah knows. He's known all along, but now he can't run from it. He should have given Shelah, his son, but he didn't do that. He didn't protect Tamar. He didn't provide for her. He didn't love her. So he sent her off to die a widow's death in her father's house. And on top of that, his own sexual immorality, he's been covering up. And so it's blatantly obvious that Judah is more wicked. And he says, surely she is more righteous than I. This doesn't mean that Tamar was right in everything she did, but at least she had a noble goal she was working towards, whereas Judah was just being selfish. A story goes on, and twins are born, Zerah and Perez. And the younger son, Perez, ends up getting the blessing. Not only does younger Perez get the blessing, he turns out to be the great, 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 great,
Jesus. So this child conceived between the father and the daughter-in-law through prostitution ends up being in God's chosen line for the Messiah. And then the credits roll. Talk about a plot twist at the last minute. There's just more layers here than I think you could even imagine, much less unpack in a short sermon here. And we finish the story, and it's like you just need to step back and kind of take a deep breath at what just took place in front of our eyes. Right, if you were at a movie theater, you'd stay for the end credits just so you could decompress a little bit. This is a lot. And so we ask ourselves, how exactly are we supposed to respond to a story like this one? And let me suggest three ways that would be godly responses to a story like Genesis 38. Here's the first response. Be surprised. Be surprised at what happens. We're supposed to be surprised at how God is working in the most messed up of families and in the most messed up parts of the most messed up families. Reuben, the oldest son, has been set aside. Joseph, one of the youngest, has received a blessing. And ungodly Judah, fourth son of the rejected wife, inherits the eternal blessing. Wicked, ungodly Judah. And there are surprising elements in exactly who God would use and how he would work through them. But there's also some surprising literary elements in the way these stories are woven together to drive home the same point. You're supposed to pause and be shocked at what has taken place. Consider just a couple of these literary elements that drive home the point of surprise. Joseph was sold into slavery. His coat is dipped in a goat's blood. Yet Judah purchases Tamar's services with a goat. Joseph would resist sexual immorality, but Judah would seek it out. Jacob would identify Joseph's coat and say, yes, this is my son, whereas Judah would identify the cord and the signet and say, this is my stuff. Jacob, years prior, would have tricked his father Isaac to get the blessing. Tamar tricks Judah to get the blessing. There was an unlikely pregnancy years back for both Sarah and for Rebekah, and certainly an unlikely pregnancy for Tamar. Jacob's life was filled with deceit and wickedness, and certainly it was the same of Judah. And God chose younger Jacob over older Esau, and then would go on to choose younger Perez over older Zerah. So there's all kinds of surprising elements being mixed together. And the point of it is this, guys, to recognize God is not limited by the things that you think will limit him. Don't put God in your little box as if you had the ability to contain the God of the universe anyways. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says, He's able to do abundantly more than anything we ask or think. There's one translation I love that says, He's able to do super abundantly more. Listen to me here. Whether it's the anxiety you carry, 
whether it's the guilt of past sin, whether it's despair over a lost sibling, whether you doubt if God is willing and able and powerful enough to actually change you. Be surprised at what we read in Genesis 38 and see the same God who's able to work in those people and those families is able to change you and the people you know that you think are beyond hope. You know somebody like Judah? Maybe you're the person like Judah? You've decided God can't change them or you? Friends, be surprised at Genesis 38 and repent of your small views of God. Here's a second response. Open your eyes. First, be surprised. Second, open your eyes. The climax of the story, the point of highest tension, is when Judah's deeds are exposed and everyone's eyes are opened to his own sin. It's interesting, Judah's promiscuous encounter with Tamar happens in a city called Enaim. That's where they hook up. Do you know what Enaim means in the original language? It means eyes. Eyes that you can see with. The sin committed at Enaim that Judah hoped no one would see, that no eye had access to, God saw and would reveal for others to see. He opened his eyes to the sin. And somehow Judah was blinded to his own sin. And from our vantage point as we read this, it's really hard to say, how could he actually be so blind, isn't it? Like, how could you be so ignorant of what's going on? He thought his problems were all around him, and he failed to identify that his biggest problems were inside of him. He thought the problem was his dad, who showed favoritism. He thought the problem was his brothers. He thought the problem was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And yet all his attempts for a fresh start in a fresh land with a fresh family resulted in him striking out. Because no matter how hard he tried to solve the problems outside of him, his eyes weren't opened to the fact that his biggest problems were inside of him. Well, I wonder if that's some of you this morning. You are so convinced that the biggest problems in your life are the people around you or some aspect of the culture outside of you. And like Judah, you're failing to recognize that your deepest problems begin with your eyes being not yet open to your own sin. And yet what's equally surprising in Judah is not just how blind he is, but that he actually has a good response once his eyes are opened. He genuinely repents. Usually you bring people sin to them and they start to defend themselves. His eyes are open. He raises his hand. He says, yeah, that's me. That's my stuff. She is way more righteous than I. And he changes. Says he didn't know her again. You see, Judah is, is his twisted character. He's known for his ugly character. 
And yet, he's also known as someone who genuinely repents and changes. We don't find him saying, well, I was kind of lonely that night, and one thing led to another. You don't find him saying, well, it was just a moment of weakness. That's not really who I am. You don't hear him saying, Tamar, why were you wearing that immodest shirt? You don't hear him saying, Tamar, why'd you trick me? He simply says, no, I was unrighteous. She's more righteous than me. And if we zoom out just a bit, we see in Genesis 43 a radical change in Judah's life. He's transformed from being radically self-centered to radically self-sacrificing. Chapter 43, we find him laying down his life, offering, say, I'm going to go back to Egypt, we're going to get our brothers back, and you can hold it all against me, Dad, if it doesn't work out. Take everything away from me. I'll give it all up. I'll give up everything for my family. Whereas previously, I was willing to sell my own brother just so I could get rich off of him. What a dramatic change. You see, one of the lessons from Judah's life, one of them, there are many, is to recognize this. The question isn't if we're going to sin. We're all sinners, we know that. But how we're going to respond when we do. See, what matters to God, friends, isn't where you start, but where you're going. He loves you exactly where you are. But he also loves you too much to leave you there. That's one of the major things I think our culture gets wrong. They say, God loves you where you are, like you are. Amen. Right. But he loves you too much to leave you there. And he loved Judah too much to leave him where he was in his sin. Judah gets off to about as bad a start as you could imagine. It's horrible. His sins are grievous. But he turns from them. His eyes are opened and he changes. And I wonder this morning, will you open your eyes and see the sin in your life? And not just acknowledge it, but confess it to God and turn away from it and repent and change. Do you remember, perhaps, as a child playing a game of pinata? Maybe you played it with your kids. Somehow we, we thought it was a good idea to hand a metal baseball bat to an eight-year-old, blindfold him with all his friends around and let him swing wildly and think good things will happen from it. And of course, everybody laughs because he's been blindfolded and he's flailing all about and is nowhere near the pinata. And if he gets within six feet of it, everyone starts to cheer. He's not close to hitting the mark, right? And then eventually we get tired of it. We go around and we're all getting hungry. And so you take the blindfold off and everybody kind of laughs at why they were seven trees away from the one with the pinata. And then the dad gets the bat and hits the pinata. The candy goes everywhere and we live to tell about it. I wonder this morning if some of you need to have a pinata moment where for the first time in your life you take the blinders off and you see, man, I've been flailing everywhere. I've been trying everything. New jobs, new relationships, new cities, new churches, new drugs, new pastimes, and none of it's working out. Friend, the problem is inside of you. You need Jesus to transform your life just like Judah did. To tell him, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. 
I know I've done things that are wrong, and I can't fix myself. And I also know, Jesus, based on this story, that I can't be so bad that you wouldn't love me and welcome me into your arms. Friends, Judah's story, it's two things. It's a word of rebuke for some of us who have played religious games and never really changed. May your eyes be opened and you repent. And it might be a little embarrassing to tell people you've gone to church with for decades that you've just been playing games with God. But it's much better to have that conversation right now than to wait till eternity and have it there. And it's a word of hope to those who would own their sin, confess their sin, and turn from it that God is never done with you. There's always more grace. May your eyes be open. May you turn from your sin and run to Jesus. That's the second response. Here's a third response. Wonder at grace. Wonder at grace. If you think in terms of comparison of two of Jacob's sons, which one is going to bring the blessing? Which one will bring the wine of Jesus? Of course, Joseph seems like the easy choice. The beloved son seems to be an upright guy, keeps pressing on through difficulty, doesn't curse God when things go poorly. The other option being Judah, who sold his brother, sought a prostitute, slept with his daughter-in-law, and then blamed her for it. And yet Judah would become the largest tribe of Israel, the leader of the twelve. He would become the namesake for the Jews. Jesus would be called the lion of the tribe of Judah. What unfathomable grace that Judah would receive. How can this be? You wonder at it. Surely this is undeserved grace. And, and it's not just Judah. If Judah is the ungodly receiving unfathomable grace, Tamar is the unloved receiving incredible grace. You see, when we get to Matthew 1, the beginning of the New Testament, and the genealogy of Jesus is listed out, there are five women listed in it. Tamar is one of them, followed by Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. All gutsy women, all bold women, all women who suffered immensely. And all five are dignified as royalty to be included in the line of Jesus. Four of the five are not Jews. They're not who you'd expect. Tamar's not a Jew. Four of the five are involved in sexual scandal. Tamar is there. All of them are outsiders. They're not the ones you'd expect. You'd, you'd think you might see like Queen Esther there. The Jew who was elevated and stood up for her people. That, that's not who we read right there. God is showing incredible grace to those that are least likely to receive it. It's a picture of grace, both for Judah and for Tamar, that's so beautiful you just stare at it. It's like you're driving home and you see one of those just unbelievable sunsets. The streaking purples and oranges and reds. You say, we should have to pull the car over so we can just stop and look at it. That is amazing. 
And in a similar way, we see grace here in a way that warms our heart and gently draws us back to the Father. I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son. You remember him? Ran off to a distant land. When he comes home, he's not cleaned himself up all the way yet. He comes home filthy, but he knows the warmth of his father's grace. His dad is running to meet him. As he comes to his father, that's how he gets cleaned off and fixed. And the image is compelling for us because we, we stand in awe and wonder at who Jesus is, at this grace that's been made available that Judah could receive, that Tamar could receive, and it gently draws us back to the Father. You see, Judah and Tamar is primarily a story about grace for the ungodly and the unloved. And knowing that it's a primarily a story about grace, I wonder if you would allow grace to transform your own life. I think it's easy for us to hear grace talked about and think, well, I'm too far gone for grace. God can't forgive me. God can't still use me. Recognize this. It's not humility. Catch this. It is not humility to act like God can't forgive, transform, and use you. That's not humility. That's putting your own goodness or your lack of goodness at the center of your story instead of God's grace at the center of your story. That's actually a cover for pride. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this is just so important for you to hear. Being a Christian isn't about being more moral or more religious. It's about centering your life on the grace of God, admitting you can't earn it and you desperately need it. That's why Jesus came, to live the perfect life you couldn't and die the death that we all deserved to bring grace to us that we could have our sins forgiven and a restored relationship with him. At the end of the day, our our life story is telling one of two stories. On the one hand, you can cling to the perfection of Jesus, to grace, that's been given to you, trusting in his death to pay for your sins and his righteous, perfect life as your entrance into heaven. It's a story with grace at the center. But the other option, the other way you can orient your life is through trusting in your ability to do good things and to avoid bad things. Puts your own works at the center. Genesis 38 gives a contrast I started out this morning telling you about the beauty of a Broadway musical. And the first time I saw that beauty, on the day that Emily and I got engaged. Ever since I saw that first musical, I've been seeing them all differently. Friend, I want to invite you this morning. Maybe you've been seeing your life all wrong. You've never put on the lens of grace to see exactly what God is doing. Maybe it's for the very first time that you need to say, Jesus, I need you. I need to actually become a Christian today. I've identified all the problems outside me and none of the ones inside me. And I recognize that Jesus is the only solution. And maybe you are a Christian. Hey, Justin, I've been a Christian for a long time. 
But my view of grace has started to get a little fuzzy. I'm starting to see kind of my own works at the center of the story. And I feel beat down when I do poorly, and I feel a little self-righteous when I do well. What I want to invite you to do is come to the best eye doctor in town, Jesus, and get a new prescription on those glasses to see grace at the center of your story. Marvel at how amazing that is. Enjoy the life in full color with a precise view of grace. And go and tell everybody you know all.